Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media library at chccny.com. What if I preached a whole message with an Irish brogue? Would you like that? <laughs> Some of you are clapping. That was terrible. You know, there was, my mom just alluded to, Pastor Linda alluded to uh, St. Patrick's Day this week. There is a wonderful book that I had to read it in a seminary class, uh, I don't know, some years ago, How the Irish Saved Civilization. It was written in 1995. The author's name is Thomas Cahill. And uh, he had a sequel to that, How the Italians Really Saved Civilization. <laughs> Just made that up, right? But uh, yeah, really, it's a wonderful book. It was a New York Times bestseller. Uh, can't stress it enough. So maybe this week, as you're thinking about, you know, St. Patrick... Be good. That's a good person, a good saint to, to talk about. Maybe at some point down the road. I told you, I always like to look at the lives of, of saints, people from the past, and make their stories hopefully come alive and inspire us. You know, and they have so much to teach us. Uh, well, if you haven't been here, we are in the uh, fourth part of a six-part series on the book of Galatians. If you have your Bibles, uh, you may want to turn to chapter 3. Uh, I will preface the sermon today by saying I am preaching from, without a doubt, the most difficult passage in the New Testament. Lucky me, right? Yeah, I'm being, I'm being serious. I'm, I'm not kidding when I say that. This is a brutal passage, very cryptic. There has been a lot of uh, debate over the centuries about the meaning of certain words of what Paul is saying. I didn't, I OP'd this week. So on Paul, you get it? You know, I OP'd. I spent a lot of time on Paul. Some of you didn't get it. I had to explain it to you. So I spent a lot of time on Pauline theology. And I have for the, obviously, the last couple of weeks in preparing for this. Uh, there's nothing better. I mean, it, how many books are inexhaustible? Really? How many books out there are as inexhaustible as this is the only one? You can read it forever and you, you still won't unlock all of the truths that are in here. I mean, think of all the classics. You pick anything you want. Nothing is like this book in that respect. And that's what makes it so wonderful as a, as a teacher, as somebody to come in here and there's always new facets to a scripture. You just see things in a new light. So that's pretty wonderful. I want to start with a, um, a mission statement, actually, from a college. I won't tell you what school it is, but if you can see that, I want to read this to you. To be, this is a mission statement from the school. To be plainly instructed and consider well that the main end of your life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ. Now, this university was founded in 1636, all right, 1636, exclusively Christian professors. It's all they hired there at the school. The chief goal, their chief desire for all students was that they would be transformed into the image of Christ. And on every single diploma, every diploma that was issued, it was around veritas. It would be Christo et Ecclesia. And that is the truth of Christ and the church. That university, none other than Harvard. Harvard University, founded 1636. Christian principles. You may remember a couple, of, maybe two years ago, I gave a sermon on what if Jesus was never born? And I kind of looked at the, the history and education and the sciences and art and just the, how the influence of one Jesus Christ. And pretty amazing when you look at that. Now, next, let me tell you this. 
Did you know that 80 years later, 80 years later, the year is 1718, some people were very concerned about the way Harvard was moving. They didn't like the fact that it was becoming so secular. So these, this group of Christian pastors from New England, they sought out an individual, Elihu Yale, a philanthropist, and said, Mr. Yale, would you be interested in possibly donating some money so we can start a new school, which became Yale University? Really? Are you kidding me? And this is what was on their diploma, Light and Truth. Light and Truth. Yes, you know, I think we look at today, their legacy, Harvard and Yale, what is their legacy or what is intact today? We think of them, I mean, intellectually speaking, or education, it doesn't get any better in terms of what the world sees when you hear of those schools. Pretty amazing. But listen to this. At the 350th anniversary celebration of Harvard, Stephen Muller, former president of Johns Hopkins, this is what he said. The bad news is the university has become godless. Larry Summers, the former president of Harvard, these are his words. Things divine have been central neither to my professional nor to my personal life. Do you think they strayed from their original mission? Do you think Harvard and Yale have strayed? Just a tiny bit. I bring that story up for you this morning at the beginning of the sermon because in the same respect, it's analogous to what was happening with the Galatians. You see, if you haven't been here and you're walking into the middle of the, of the series, like the middle of a movie, and you're like, I don't really know what's going on. Let me just give you a quick, quick synopsis of the whole book. The whole book is, to distill it, is the Apostle Paul is writing a very strong, forceful, stern letter to the Galatian church. Telling these Galatians, look, you need to understand something. It's Jesus Christ plus nothing equals everything. They are trying to have a works righteousness while they're trying to add things. No, no, no. Oh, you're a Gentile? You're going to become a Christian? Let me, let me tell you this. You can become a Christian. Yeah, you put your faith in, in Christ and what he did on that cross. Yes, his salvific work. Yes, that's good. But there are other things that you have to do. There are other ceremonial laws that you have to follow. You have to follow the Old Testament. You have to follow all of those laws. And if you do that, then... You, in essence, are a Christian. And Paul is saying, last week, you foolish Galatians. And as one commentator said, he was basically saying, you idiots, right? In a a loving way, what are you doing? You have gone astray. You have strayed from the original message. You have strayed from the foundation, your moorings. You don't realize it, but you need to see where you were captured, where you saw the image and you understood what was really going on. And to review very quickly... Um, I thought that was kind of funny. I saw that on the internet. We'll work for salvation. I thought that kind of summed up the, the Judaizers, these people. This is, in essence, what they were saying. You know what? You have to work for your salvation. And then to highlight last week in chapter 3, we were in the beginning of chapter 3. Remember, we talked about Father Abraham, and we sang that song, Father Abraham had many sons. And this was one of the key verses we looked at. Just as Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. We talked last week about our justification in righteousness. Our standing in God. Our standing. What God has done on that cross, a very important part of Christianity. I think it's something that a lot of times, you may have heard that word, what does justification mean? 
that's what we were talking about. And we said last week, right, it's not about our performance record. We live in a world where it's all about our performance. What it, how are your grades? What did you do here? Here is my resume for a job. And Paul comes along and says, no, it's about one perfect record. It's about one record, and that record is of Jesus Christ. And when God sees, this, when God sees us, he sees his son. He sees the son's perfect record. No longer do you have to try to, as we talked about that story from Martin Luther last week, you no longer have to climb the steps to try to get to God. It's been done. It is finished. It's not about attainment. It's about atonement. And with that, we're ready to roll into the next part of the chapter. So we're going to be and we're going to start in 315. But I'm going to read you the whole passage. You know what? Let me show you. Just if you haven't read this in some time or you've never been exposed to this chapter before. All right. Here you are. I'm glad you're here this morning. I'm just going to read you 50. I'm going to read you like 10 verses. All right. You see if you can pick everything up the first time you're hearing this. Ready? Here we go. Oops, not going to do that. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one. And to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Do I even need to preach now? You kind of, you got it, right? You even need me to talk about this? Did you understand everything that Paul was talking about? You got it all, right? You don't need me. You need me? Yeah? You sure? You positive? That wasn't a really, that wasn't a, I don't feel needed. I don't really feel needed right now. You hurt my feelings. And he starts here in 15. Let's just look at some of this. He starts here in in verse 15 and he says, Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet it is confirmed no one annuls or adds to it. And what we're talking about here is Paul is starting by underlying what, what the law does not do. This whole passage is really about the promise and the law. And he's saying in here, he's talking about this, this kind of contract. And you know, we think of like, think of human contracts. I mean, most contracts can't be voided. I don't know whether, you know, you think of work or maybe there's a moral clause in a contract. Maybe you're like, I don't know, what would be an example from the sports world? Like uh, an, an A-Royd, right? The guy that plays for the Yankees. 
not A-Rod, A-Right, all right? Somebody like that. Maybe you break a contract with a guy like that because of a moral clause because he's on PEDs, right? I can't watch the Yankees anymore because he's on their team, right? I won't. I refuse to. But that would be an example of a contract. And the word translated covenant in the NIV is a word for a legal will, a legal will. No one can know this. Now, you have to see... What is he talking about in this passage? He's trying to separate. He's talking about on one hand, which we started last week, he's talking about the promise to Abraham. And I don't have time to go into this. You'd be asleep if I started. I'm trying to keep you awake now. If you go to Genesis chapters 12 through 15, you can see this whole story of the covenant. I alluded to it. I've taught on it in detail before and how they had the animal sacrifice there. They took the animals. God is, is having this blood covenant, which is what they did in the ancient world. And they would take animals, goats, heifers. They, they'd cut them up and they create a blood path, Right? And there is this blood path, and both parties in a covenant in the ancient world... I'm going really fast, giving you the Reader's Digest. And both parties in a covenant were supposed to walk through. And we know it tells us in Genesis that God goes through twice, that Abraham never goes through. And it's, listen, Abraham, look at the stars in the sky, right? Your descendants will be more than what you see up there, a promise that is given to him. Then you say, what was the law thing he was talking about 430 years later? He's talking about the law that was given to... Moses, the Ten Commandments. So Paul is trying to tell them, the Galatians, hey, look, there is a promise that was given, right, to Abraham. Then 430 years later, this is, I'm giving you the crux of the message. Then 430 years later, he gives them the law. Why would he give them the law 430 years later if he's already given Abraham the gospel prior to that? Why would he need to give them the law? You following me? All right. As long as you're on the same page with me. Stop me. Really, stop me today. If you don't understand, don't really stop me. (laughs) All right. Moving on. 16 and 17. Now to Abraham and his seed where the promise is made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one. And to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, underline it just in case you didn't understand. Now you understand what we're talking about. Cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ that it should make the promise in no effect there. So we see that and how important this is to understand the difference. And this is, again, this is what Paul is trying to talk to them about. It's not about work salvation, works righteousness. You keep trying to follow the law, Galatians, you Judaizers. He's telling these new people that have just converted to Christianity or followers of the way, he's trying to tell them, this is not the gospel, It's not about trying harder. It doesn't make any sense. That doesn't work. That's not the gospel that Jesus came to bring. And then he says in verse 18, he says, For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. If I give you something because of what I promised, it's really not because of your performance, right? I promise to give you something. It has nothing to do with your performance. It's not meritorious. You do not earn it. It's simply a promise. I'm promising to give you something. If I give you something because of what you have done, it's not a promise. It's not because of a promise. You did something. You earned it. You follow me? You did that. All right. So, for example, trying to think of an illustration to make this um, pretty clear for you. Imagine Pastor Joe wants to give you a million dollars. How benevolent is your pastor, right? He has a million dollars inside of the, you know, in the trunk of his car. All right. A little scary, right? You're like, all right, what's going on? (laughs) 
So, Pastor Joe, not playing along, Pastor Joe has a million dollars that he would like to give you. If he's saying to you, I want to give you this, the only thing that you have to do is, he's saying, I'm giving it to you. The only thing that would stop you from not getting the million dollars is you saying it's not true that you don't believe him. Now, on the other hand, he is one of your pastors here in the church. If Pastor Joe said, there is a stipulation here, I would like to give you a million dollars. But, 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 but. I would like for you to take care of all these things that I need around the house. I need you to drive me here. I need you to cook for me. Good luck. I need you to do this. I need you to do that. All these things. There's a stipulation. Then in essence, it's saying you have to earn the million dollars by doing all of these things. It's much different than a promise. Are you with me? All right, so huge difference between a promise and a law. For a law to bring a result, it has to be obeyed, right? You following me? For something to be obeyed and trying to break this down, Paul is saying there is a huge difference between law on one hand and promise on the other hand. Now, moving into verse 19, he says, what purpose then does the law serve? This is it right here. This is where he starts to really get going. He's shifting it in overdrive. What purpose does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. The law did not come to tell us about salvation. Do you understand this? The law was not given to tell us about salvation. It was given to tell us about our sin. It shows our problem that we are what? You know what we are? Let me tell you what we are. We're lawbreakers. That's what we are. We're lawbreakers. You want an example of this? I'm going to give you a plethora of examples. Here is example number one. In Galveston, Texas, a few years ago, they built a high-rise hotel right on the Gulf of Mexico, right? They put, they put the, I don't, what's the, uh, the real, the word, pilings? Is that the right word, whatever? All right, yeah, yeah, all right, good, good. So they put the pilings actually in the Gulf of Mexico. So the structure is coming out over the Gulf of Mexico. You following me? So from your beautiful, you know, hotel room, you could have this picturesque view of the Gulf, right? Well, when they built it right after, somebody that worked at the hotel said, you know what we need to do? We're going to have a problem on our hands if we don't put signs all over the hotel. Please do not fish. Fishing is not allowed. Really? Fishing is not allowed out of hotel windows? Are you kidding me? Who goes into a hotel? It's on the water. And you're thinking, hey, buddy, did you bring your fishing rod? Honey, did you bring your fishing rod? I see a couple of hands in the back. All right. Maybe some of you. The average person, most normal people in this world... Do not bring fishing rods with them to hotels. So there are people. This is true. True story. Imagine you're in the restaurant. You're eating. Honey, what a beautiful view. And smack right up against the window of fish. People's lines started to get all tangled. Why did they start? They never thought of the idea to go fishing before they went to the hotel. It was only after they saw the signs which said, do not fish out of hotel windows. We were meant to, uh, come on, the law was there for us to break. St. Augustine, how many of you know St. Augustine? And let me say this too. Now I'm, warm, now I'm warmed up. St. Augustine, he, he, we should read the classics. There is a proliferation of all these books that come out, right? In Christianity, read the classics. Read the classics. 
One of his books, Confessions, he talks about a story when he's a young man. And he's in this, uh, on this palatial estate. And there's this area where there are all these apple trees and pear trees. And he is told, he is strictly forbidden. You are not to eat of, those, of that fruit. You are not to eat any of the fruit that's over here on the property. And he says, you know what? I had to break the law. I had to go get one of the pears. He goes, it was weird though. I wasn't even hungry. It was bizarre. I wasn't, and I don't even like pears. But once somebody told me, you shall not do that. He said, I had to do it. And I can understand this too from my own life. Now, some of you are going to find this hard to believe again because you look at me as a paragon of spiritual and emotional maturity. So I have to preface that. I'm letting you down a little bit. When I was in high school, talk about rules. And I've given you some stories. I went to Stony Brook School, not far from here. And uh, I was subjected, I, I have to put it that way. I was subjected to chapel every day. Subjected to it. Because it was, hey, you know what? I didn't get much sleep last night. Don't worry. You got chapel today, pal. You can sleep for a good 20 minutes. You'll be good to go for your next class. Well, there was a guy, and this is really true. And I wonder, like, there were two sessions. So what we would always try to do is they told you have to go to chapel. And you have to sign in. When I was there, it was, uh, no, the technology was different. You had to literally cross your name off and walk in. And there was this one guy. He was my baseball coach. And I won't even just say his name. But you know, we used to, I, I came up with this and it's kind of weird. Do you remember this? We used to say his name backwards. And we would talk about him in front of him by saying his name backwards. And he was really not a nice man. He was like the law. And he would constantly try to whip us into shape. And it was always a game. Can you get there before me? Cross my name off. I'll be over here. I'll get you afterwards. So it was always a game on how we could break the laws. I was the king at breaking laws at Stony Brook School. I should have gotten a trophy. There should be a plaque up somewhere because I was the king at breaking laws. Right? Right? When they tell you you can't do things, you want to do it. So the law puts ideas in our head. When God gave Moses the law at Mount Sinai, he gave, he gave Moses the Ten Commandments. He's giving the entire world knowledge about what is right and wrong. Is he not? Spelling it out. Here is what is right. Here is what is wrong. The law of God shows us what God is defining as sin. Defining, in essence, what is sin. But listen, the law interacts with our hearts and provokes us to sin. I didn't put it up on a PowerPoint slide, but just listen to this from Romans, what Paul says. In Romans 7, he says, For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. The law ends in death. Death. So Paul is saying that, and he goes on here. Let's look at the next two verses. He says in 21 and 22, Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given, which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. (laughs) In terms of the law, I don't know how many of you are familiar with these two names. This is beyond fascinating. The one name is A.J. Jacobs, and the other name is Rachel Evans Held. Let me show you a picture of the first guy here. This is A.J. Jacobs, a man a couple of years ago, spent, fabulous book, it's wonderful. Now, this guy spent a year of his life, the year year of living biblically, subtitled, uh, One Man's Humble Quest, Following the Bible as Literally as Possible. So you see there, I put the picture, he grew out a beard. I mean, now listen, he's Jewish. But by Jewish, I mean like uh, Olive Garden is Italian. 
right? Because he is, he is not, took you a while. He is nominal, he is a nominal Jew at best. And he, he pretty much states that in the book. But he follows like 700 commands in the Bible. And there are certain things he doesn't like close with different kinds of fibers. I can't wear these. It says in Levitical law, what do I do with my computer? Am I allowed to use this? Um, he, he has, uh, it's be fruitful and multiply. He and his wife, she gets pregnant during this year of uh, undertaking this. And it's fascinating. Now, the woman that did something similar, she does, her book is a year and a half ago. Haven't read the whole book. Uh, perused it, looked at a couple of excerpts. I know Megan is looking for this for, uh, for Mother's Day. I don't know if that's going to happen. A year of biblical womanhood. And the subtitle here, it's, uh, listen to this. How a liberated woman found herself sitting on her roof, covering her head, and calling her husband master. It's the subtitle. So, these individuals trying to follow the letter of the law. Pretty interesting, right? Anybody, you're looking to try this? Right, something you want to do in 2015? Yeah, I didn't think so. But here is my favorite thing. Like, and here's one scene. This is him, the guy, A.J. Jacobs. He has a sheep and he's just parading around uh, Times Square. I mean, literally. I mean, the guy, it's very funny. His, his, his candor, his humor. It's a wonderful story. And... What was wild to me, can I give you my favorite story? I said, I'd be remiss if I don't give them my favorite story. All right. He is in Central Park. This is on day 62 of his experiment. And he says, I'm trying to put into practice the command to stone an adulterer. Right? right wait till you hear this. This is wild. So he records wandering into Central Park and he meets a 70-ish old man and he's sitting on a park bench. He goes up to the man and he says, hey, look, I'm trying to live by the rules of the Bible. You know, the Ten Commandments, stoning adulterers. Okay. Uh, Jacobs records the rest here. He says, yeah, I'm stoning adulterers. The guy says, I'm an adulterer. You're currently an adulterer, Jacob says. Yeah, tonight, tomorrow, yesterday, two weeks from now, you're going to stone me? If I could, yes, that would be great. The guy comes back. Look what he quips back with. I'll punch you in the face. I'll send you to the cemetery. <laughs> Jacobs writes, he is serious. This isn't a cutesy, grumpy old man. This is an angry old man. This is a man with seven decades of hostility behind him. I fish my pebbles from my back pocket. I wouldn't stone you with big stones, I say. Just these little guys. I open my palm to show him the pebbles. He lunges at me, grabbing one out of my hand, then flinging it at my face. It whizzes by my cheek. I am stunned for a second. I hadn't expected this grizzled old man to make the first move. But now there is nothing stopping me from retaliating. An eye for an eye. I take one of the remaining pebbles and whip it at his chest. It bounces off. He says, I'll punch you right in the kisser. And then his final remark is, well, you really shouldn't commit adultery. Great. I mean, absolutely wonderful. Talk about following the law. And, you know, at times, though, in the book, at times in the book, exacerbated, just totally frustrated with doing all these things. And he didn't really know. There's actually a TED Talk, too. I don't know if you are familiar with TED Talks. You can check one out. It's fascinating. Go look that up, too. And you can see this guy's experience. And I thought, though, I said, you know, this is, this, this is what happens when people, people get frustrated when they try to follow the law. It leads to death. How many of you have seen the movie Shawshank Redemption, one of my all-time favorite movies? 
don't know how many of you remember the character Red. Remember the character Red played by Morgan Freeman? Very poignant scene. You see, he's been, uh, he's been in prison. He's been in prison for 40 years. He committed a crime, a heinous crime as a teenager. He's been in prison for these 40 years, right? He goes before the parole board. I've memorized the scene. You're not getting it, but that's what I do. Weird stuff like that. Memorize movie scenes, and then I throw them out. Maybe at a party one day, you'll, I'll, I'll give it to you. Not today, all right? But, so he goes before the parole board. You remember that scene? It's awesome. He's like, what, you know, he's, go ahead. He doesn't care anymore. He's like, whatever you want to do. And they, like, they approve the parole. He gets out, and he's out there, and he's working at, like, a, a stop and shop, a conv- you know, a grocery store, right? And he's in there, and he keeps asking to use the restroom. And finally, the manager is like, look, pal, you don't have to ask every time you need to go to the bathroom. Just go to the bathroom, do what you have to do, come back and work. And what was so weird, you hear his voice in the background. He starts talking about this. You see, he says, I've been institutionalized. You see, he said, I even thought about breaking parole so they would send me back to prison because prison was all he knew. He knew the walls. He understood everything. He didn't have to think. The laws in the prison told him exactly what to do every single day. And he says this. This is the poignant line for me. He says, it's a terrible thing to live in fear. And I said, how many of us are institutionalized? How many of us, in a sense, are living by laws that Christ never intended for us to live? And I, I, I was thinking, it's sitting over here as the, the worship was going on. G.K. Chesterton, prolific author from the 20th century. He said, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and not tried. The method by which we're going, trying to find life, many times is not giving us life. We think we understand what the gospel is. And we think, and I know some of you are probably listening to this message and you go, James, this is not an issue for me. I have no issues with following the law. I understand it's by grace. And I would say, "Uh, I beg to differ. And this is what I mean. Pastor Linda and I were talking yesterday and of course she was giving me some insight in her years of, I don't know, reading everything under the sun in, in terms of what's out there. And we were talking and she brought up a really good point. And this is it. How many of you, what about these laws that we live by? Just look at this list. And these were given to the Hill Houses. I don't know how many of you got to this when it was last week. How about these laws? This should hit you right where you live. I should not doubt God or the Bible. Really? Who says? I I was with somebody last night. We were just talking about that. How come we think that we're supposed to come to a church and have absolute certainty on everything? You will not. Listen to me. For the rest of the days, you will not have certainty on certain things. You just won't. You need to, John Ortberg wrote a great book. It's called No Doubt, K-N-O-W, No Doubt. At times, we need to know doubt. And some people are like, that's heretical. No, it's not. It is not heretical. And we should be people that say, I can embrace the fact that I have doubts and I have questions. Embrace them. I should always be happy. Really? Who says? The song, happy? What I, who says that we're always supposed to be happy? Come on. I should never be depressed. I should always feel God loves me. I should want to go to church every Sunday. How many of you didn't want to come to church today? I'm not putting my hand up. That was awesome. I'm not putting my hand up. You putting your hand up? No one wants to be. I wanted somebody to put their hand up, right? Pastor Linda put her hand up. Woo. Come on, be real, be real. I should always have to go to church. I should always have to go to church. I should always be happy. I should not feel uh, sexual desire except when I'm supposed to. These are laws that we live by. Listen to me. This is the gospel. This is not, I'm telling you, listen, 
They have insight. This has been stuff that has been passed down to us, the other generation. Go listen, go, uh, listen, go listen to people on TV. They don't talk like this. Not many people do. Not many people do. But that's why this is a wonderful place for me in growing up because I think we're learning, we've learned how to become emotionally healthy people. To realize there are reasons why, but there are laws that we're living by. What about the laws that you're living by? And then to ask those, th- those laws questions. Why do I do that? For myself, in, in ruminating on this, I'm a perfectionist. I am as driven as they come. A lot of that absolutely stems from my feelings of inadequacy when I was younger and the fact that I wasted so much time. I wasted time at opportunities that other people don't have. And then I feel like, oh my gosh, I have to be driven. I have to succeed. I have to excel. What is it for you? What are the laws? What are the lies you're listening to? How about when you don't have your devotional time? Do you feel like God is looking at you? Oh my gosh, that he's the stern taskmaster? How many of you woke up one day this week and you usually have a devotional time? You usually pray. You usually do something that is spiritual and you didn't do it. And you felt as if God was looking down on you and you're ashamed. You felt guilt and condemnation. I didn't ask you to raise your hands, but people are raising their hands because this is where people live. This is, this is what is so insidious. Please listen to me. This is what is so insidious about the enemy. It's not, hey, go out and commit the big sins. Go be an adulterer. Go be a murderer. Go do all these things. It's, listen, believe these lies. Walk around with these lies and these laws in your mind. Let them play over and over again like a tape recorder. Over and over again. And as they continue to play, we believe them. We believe them. We believe them about ourselves. It's not the gospel. There's another way, friends. There's another way that we can live, and they bring death. Moving on to what Paul says in in the chapter, finishing up here. He says in 23 and 24, But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. I love this. Now, I underline those two words. And the first one there, you see the law is a guard. Um, the Greek words for held prisoners and, and locked up in other translations mean to be protected by military guards. But the second one is the one that is the most um, interesting for our purposes this morning. The law is a tutor under whose supervision that we are. Now, you wouldn't get this. Can I give you what the real meaning is in the, in the first century when he's writing this? Because this would just go right over your head. went over my head. I had never known this before until I studied it in, in depth. The word tutor, we think of a tutor, what do you think of? You think of that person coming over like when I was in high school. You think of that person that came over and maybe they worked with you in like math or science and they sat you down, right? And they're actually tutoring you, trying to help you become a better student. No. The, the word here, tutor, it connotes somebody that was in a, uh, somebody that was affluent, had money, right? In wealthy families in the first century, they would hire slaves. It was a slave. The slave would come in. They would, in essence, take care of the kids. They would do everything for the kids. They were really raising the kids. Kind of like an au pair, maybe in our culture today, very wealthy people. You see Hollywood people. They don't know their kids' names and other people raise them, right? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, so in this culture, that's what he's saying. And always, the tutors that would come in, they were slaves again. They were always mean and they were very stern. And if you go to encyclopedias you, and you look up this word from the first century, you'll actually even see pictures. I couldn't find one just Googling it. But you'll see pictures of people with rods and whips. 
So imagine like, hey, I'm here for my interview. And you come in and like they're checking out the whip that you have or the rod that you have to use on the kids. You used any means necessary to make those kids follow the law. You following me? That's what he's saying here. So the law was a tutor and it's raising those kids. The law, in essence, it's guardrails. Right? It's good in the beginning, you start off, but then you realize, why did God give the law? He gave the law to show man, you can't keep the law. You can't keep it. It's impossible. And even right when he gave it to Moses and the people, what do they think? We can do this. We got this. We got this. Come on. It reminds me, too, of growing up in the Lecce home. Uh, my, my father was a principal at the, at, the, at the wood here, along with high school. And... Uh, there were times when kids would get in trouble at school and uh, they would be brought down to Mr. Lecce's office. This is like 70s and 80s. It's hard to believe this is real. Like if boys came down, I met a guy one time. Guy was like, hey, how you doing? Joe, uh, Joe Lecce's your father? Yeah, yeah, how you doing? He paddled me when I was in high school. Oh, he paddled me. Okay. You broke paddles on a couple of kids, right? Yes, yes. Common, you may look, listen, today, obviously, we don't do that, but very common in like the 70s and 80s. And there, remember at home, there was a paddle. There was a paddle at home. Yes. Kids, yeah, holes on it. Yes. Boom. And he had all these little games that he would use in trying to inflict pain on these kids. But parents would actually even call, hey, Mr. Lecce, you know, do what you have to do. You have to hit the kid. You know, you do what you have to do with my son. All right, keep them in line. That's kind of the image I think of when I really see this here. That's what this is. The first century meaning. That's what the tutor is. Somebody that was mean. Somebody that was very, I'm not saying he was mean, but somebody that was mean and somebody that was very stern. The law is, look at it this way. The law is like training wheels. The law is training wheels. And then you learn how to ride the bike. You no longer, as time goes on, need the training wheels. You take the training wheels off. If you're an adult and you're outside on a day like today later on, and I see you with training wheels, I will make fun of you. Your neighbors should make fun of you. That's just not normal. As you get older, you no longer need the training wheels. Important. Understand to know, uh, understand that. To Yeah, whatever. And I think a lot of times we, we miss the point that the law, doesn't the law just beat you up? What I put up before, even like those things that we have in our minds, the law constantly beats us up, smacks us around and beats us up. But we have to remember what Paul is saying here. And I know, again, this is a hard passage, not the most riveting sermon you're going to hear from me. I get it. But I wasn't, I wasn't, it could have been easy. It would have been easy to say, I'm just going to move ahead to maybe chapter four or just kind of skim over chapter 3, but this is so important to our faith. And Paul is saying here, the law is pointing beyond itself. It's pointing to someone. It's pointing to something, and that it's pointing to a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. And you know what? I think many times we come to church, and what do we do? As I said before with that Chesterton quote, I think we come into church, and we testify about our need for God, right? Man, I, I need God, and we come in, and I want to be religious. I want to get religious. And we come in and we try really hard to clean up our lives. How many of you know what I'm talking about? We try to clean up our lives. And then something happens when things are going well, right? Something happens, we're on cloud nine, we're happy. But if something doesn't go well in our life and we're trying really hard and we fail, we get despondent and we think many times, this Christianity thing is not for me. 
This Christianity thing's not for me. I came at God, why aren't you cleaning up my life? Help me clean up my life. Help me. You can help me do it. Can I give you the last part here? I'm not preaching next week, Pastor Thomas. You ready? Five minutes. Give me five minutes. I promise I'll be done. This is the most important thing I'm going to say today, and I'm going to, I'm going to deviate from the text now. You with me? So we've talked the last two weeks about justification for the most part. I've talked this morning about the difference between the law and the promise. I don't know how else to make it clear. All right? He's upset. All right? I'm a, I'll go 10 minutes. I know he wants a little more preaching. So you think about the difference between the law and the promise. We've talked about justification. We haven't said a lot about sanctification. You're like, what? I heard that word a thousand times. What does that mean? Sanctification is how are we conformed to the image of Christ? Follow me. So justification is our position, right? Our stance. Then sanctification is how do we, how are we set apart? Using the word holy, how are we people that become conformed into the image of Christ? Are you with me? All right. That's sanctification. I'm going to somebody, watch me. Now this is Pastor Linda's love, right? It doesn't get, now you people that have been around you, Christians in here that have been around for a long time, you've heard that name. One of his disciples actually came to the church years ago and helped lay the foundation of this place. And we're very grateful for everything that they taught. She has been passing it on uh, to me and others in our generation. And Watchman Nee, can I just give you a little history about him? I probably should, right? Not many, I don't know how many people know some of the history. Watchman Nee was a prolific uh, Chinese writer. He was, he was born 1902, died 1972. Part of the underground church movement in China was imprisoned in 1952, was sent there for 20 years. He, he was spent 20 years in prison, will ultimately die in that prison, could have gotten out. The communist regime, regime said, listen, stop preaching Christ, we're going to let you out. The guy refused to. He said, I'm going to lay my life down. His name was really not Watchman. That wasn't the name he was given at birth. But he said, I am a watchman, like a watchman on the wall in a dark night that I look at society. I'm somebody that's supposed to warn people. And interesting, too, when he was in his mom's womb, his mom consecrated him to God. Before he was ever born, his mom consecrated him to God. And she said, Lord, if you give me a son, you give me a son, I will give him back to you. And his father always reminded him of that. You remember, son, your mom consecrated you to the Lord. You're a Christian. Don't run from that. And he didn't. And he's there. And this is one of the things that he wrote. I mean, there's so many wonderful things. But here's, here's one quote I love. The law was not given with the expectation that we would keep it. It was given in the full knowledge that we would break it. We've said that. And when we have broken it so completely as to be convinced of our utter need, then the law has served its full purpose. Do you get that? Once we realize we can't follow the law, the law has served its... Thank you. Thank you, law. Have a nice day. We have parting gifts for you. You're done now. You're done. And then the second part of it, it says, it has been our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Schoolmaster is from the old King James Version. I don't like that word. The connotation, I, I like tutor better, but whatever. To bring us to Christ, that in us he himself may fulfill it. Now, here's the next one. This one's even better, all right? Now, here's what he's talking about in terms of sanctification and justification. One faulty line of thinking that is prevalent among Christians is this. We know that justification is ours through the Lord Jesus and that it requires no work on our part. We get that, and we've been saying that since last week. You can't work for salvation. You can't do it. But we think sanctification, becoming holy, become, being conformed to the Im, into the image of Christ is dependent on our own efforts. Did you get that? 
We know we can receive forgiveness only by our entire reliance on the Lord, yet we believe we can obtain deliverance by doing something ourselves. After salvation, the old habit of doing reasserts itself, and we begin our old self-efforts again. However, the Bible declares that in both justification and sanctification, he is the doer. It is God who works in you. He is the doer on both parts. Please, if you're somebody that has been frustrated as a Christian, please understand this. And you're trying to make changes in your life. Will you understand that probably for the most part, and I've been guilty of this too, you're trying to do it in your own power. You have come to church and you have asked God, God, help me clean up my life. God, help me become more patient. God, help me, Lord, in this area, with humility, whatever the area is. And God says, no, the the gospel is this. The gospel is, it is an exchanged life. It is not, we're not looking to be changed. It is his actual life. Lord, you are humility. Lord, you are patience. Please get this. It is not, I want to be more, help me be more patient. It's Lord, since you are patience, I ask that your life would be lived through me. You can try by willpower. Go ahead. See how long that lasts. See how long you can take it. Because you may take it for a little while, but I'm talking about real transformation happens when we come to the realization there is another life that lives on the inside of us and wants to live in and through us. And when God sees us, he sees his son. He says in the normal Christian life, and Pastor Linda has shared this example so many times, a guy that he can't quit smoking. And he says to him, I just can't quit smoking. And watch when he says to him, have you thanked God for the fact that you can't quit smoking? You can't do it on your own. There has to be another life that lives inside of you that can change you. When we keep trying to do things on our own by willpower and human effort, that doesn't mean there are things we set the foundation we open ourselves to God. When we're, whatever it is, whatever spiritual practices or disciplines, whatever words you want to use, we open ourselves, but he changes us. It's his life. And I don't know, I've heard this my whole life, but it's becoming newer and realer for me. When it, what about when we're sick? When somebody is sick, God, you are my healing. Lord, please try to heal. No, you are healing. Lord, I'm in covenant relationship with you. You have not lost any of your power to heal. Lord, my marriage, you still are a restorer. You are a deliverer. My son, my daughter is wayward. No, he has not lost any of his power. It's his life living on the inside of us. Please, this is the gospel. I'm throwing a lot of theology at you today. I'm throwing more theology at you than I usually do. But isn't this what the gospel is? Isn't this why so many times people leave church and they're like, I'm just, I'm done. I've had it. I'm fried. Isn't this the major reason why willpower, human effort, not realizing there really is another life that lives inside? Do you realize the power? I talked about the Holy Spirit last week. Do you realize the power we have inside of us? staggering power and we wonder why we're so feeble we wonder why we can't make changes we wonder why it's so hard to come to church we wonder why we're so tired and exhausted because we're relying on our own power and our own energy when he's given us this power source that is unlimited greater than any nuclear bomb atomic bomb anything that the world could ever produce and he's offering it to us for free He says, I am the doer. I am the one that changes you. It's my life. Will you let me do that inside of you? It's freedom. The law didn't come to confine. The law came to give us freedom.
Man, I'm just, Lord, I am so thankful to be a Christian and realize it's the only religion in the world. Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, every, every other religion that is out there, every other movement, nothing is like this movement. Everything is about merit. Everything is about working our way to you. This is the only one because you sent your son into the world and you said it is finished. It is finished forever. It's not finished for a little while. It's finished forever. Stop your trying. It is done. We're always trying to do, doing, 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 being, being. Let him live through you, whatever it is. Is it easy? Is it a little ethereal? Talking to my mom about it? Yeah, it is. It's hard. doesn't mean it's easy. Overnight, you're going to go, I get it now. But you know what? Maybe this starts something. It triggers something inside of you of what the gospel really is about this other life, the exchanged life. This is what sanctification is. This is what justification is. This is who we are as a church. This gospel message will be preached forever in this place. We're not giving you a pseudo gospel. We're not here. I'm not here to just entertain you. Listen, Tom and I, we try to. Listen, me try to put this sermon together. You don't think it was hard to come up with illustrations and stuff to try to entertain you a little bit? It's a tough topic. This, though, is reality. This is reality. If we could get this on the inside of us, and really believe it. Lord, I ask even right now, as we t- come to your table, Father, my feeble words, I, I, Lord, I, I know that you live in me, the speaker. Lord, I know that I believe that you have the power to open blind eyes. You have the power, Lord, to open up hearts and minds and help us to see what is real and what is true. You have the power, Lord. You have the power to change us from the inside out. You have the power to show us what the real, ordinary Christian life is. You have the power to tell us and for us to see that we continually try to try. Lord, I ask, we thank you as a people that we can't change in our own. Lord, I thank you for City on a Hill Community Church that we are powerless people to make changes in our lives. I thank you that it's only through your son living in and through us. I don't know what else to say. That's it. That's the gospel. And I'm sure, listen, I'm sure 20 years from now, we'll bur- I would want this burn. You know, you preach for long enough and like, a message like this, I'm, I don't know. This is my attempt to take a very difficult topic and try to convey it to you. I can't do it the way she can do it, but it's my attempt. And I know it's real and I know it's true and I know it's important. So uh, ushers, without any further ado, we would come forward for the, uh, for the table. emotional and very emo- I was always emotional in sports whatever I get emotional I'd see what these people did and I'm like this is real people really did this Martin Luther really did that when I talked about his story last week climbing the stairs Watchman he really sat in prison 20 years and he didn't have to Thanks for listening to City on a Hill's podcast. 
For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.